Thank you, Nate, and uh, the team will be back up in just uh, a few moments after the, after the message. Well, it's great to be with you this morning. If you're a guest of us, my name is Craig, and uh, I get the privilege of kicking off our series uh, today entitled Old Testament Top Hits, the Old Testament's Greatest Hits, and we are looking at the, the theme of worship. Now, I realize that whenever we talk about a theme like worship, some people will think, oh no, but I do pray that this won't be so much of an oh no experience for you, but a journey through five Old Testament passages that really shaped the collective experience of worship that God's people had, and I pray that these texts as we journey through them will really shape your experience and our experience of worship as well. Because what we're going to do is through the series, we're going to ask what worship looks like in a believer's life. You see, we believe that worship goes way beyond the 75 minutes that we gather together on a Sunday morning. We believe that worship is a lifestyle. And it's a lifestyle because every breath that we breathe is a breath drawn in the presence of a God who has saved us, who's changed us, who's created this world. And it's all that we can do just to honor and glorify Him. That's what worship really is. And so through the series, we, we want to inspire you to worship in whatever way that looks like for you. And to do it, we are going to explore five uh, passages and the biblical concept of worship that are in those uh, five pivotal experiences in the Old Testament. We're going to begin today in an Old Testament book of Kings, First Kings and uh, chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, please turn there with me to First Kings chapter 8. If you haven't got a copy of the Scriptures and would like one, then what you can do is just raise your hands in the air and our team of ushers will be delighted to put a copy of the Scriptures in your hand. And then once you are in 1 Kings or you do have a Bible, you can turn to page 339, and that's the passage of Scripture that we are going to be looking at this morning. Now, the backdrop to this text is that David really sent, uh, sent, uh, felt led to build a, a temple to, amongst other things, offer a permanent place permanent residence for the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was the localized presence of God with his people. Now, God wouldn't permit David to build the temple because in, in the words of the scripture, David was a man with blood on his hands. So that task fell to Solomon, David's son. Now, before building the temple, David gave Solomon a number of instructions. Solomon heeded those instructions, and the temple was built. And so now comes the moment where the Ark of the Covenant is going to take up its place, its permanent place, they believed, in the temple. So that's the background to the story. Let's begin to read from verse 3 of 1 Kings chapter 8. When all the elders of Israel had arrived, the priests took up the ark, and they brought the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. The priests and the Levites carried them up, and King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. The priest then brought the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. 
And the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark and overshadowed the ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from the outside, from outside the holy place, and they're still there today. Do you get the feeling as you're reading this that the person writing this is looking back, reliving that experience? So many details in there. It's as if, it, it's as if they still see it. Why? Well, we're coming to the reason why in a few moments. Verse 9, there was nothing in the ark except two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. And here we go, verse 10 and 11. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Now stop there. The, the Bible is clear. God desires to meet us in corporate worship. Yet this story reveals that sometimes God's plan doesn't fit the agenda that we have for the day. God's actions seem to tear up the script. That's a really important lesson for me and for us at Central. We script the service. Now, if you were one of the few that were here at nine o'clock, you'd have seen a video. And in that video, we were introduced to a person by the name of Anne. Anne came to Central with her husband and two kids, really kind of thinking that C-dub, as she called it, um, reminds me of George Bush whenever that happens. That's the way Americans say W. That's what I always thought. But um, thinking that C-dub was basically too big to be personal. And she was basically blown away by Liz and the way that that Liz served. See, service is really important in the house of God. And these priests had a service that they were designed to do. Anne's journey into Central led her to come on staff. She now holds the, the, the great title of traffic controller. That doesn't mean she stands in the parking lot and directs everybody in. It basically means that she monitors the flow of information from all of our campuses through our communications uh, team and uh, the organizations that we use to ensure that everything gets communicated and put out in a timely manner. That's her job. And Anne came on staff, and the first day that she was on staff with us, it was a Thursday, she came to our Sunday walkthrough meeting. And uh, Anne was there as we were kind of walking through what would happen on the Sunday morning service, and I was sitting there, there were about 10 or 12 people in the room, and Anne is just there with her mouth open, and I looked at Anne and said, you look a little surprised, Anne. And she's like, man, I just thought I turned up. So much planning, so much scripting goes into everything that happens here. And the tension we feel is that we need to plan, because planning is a good thing, read Proverbs, but sometimes in that planning, God turns up in a way that breaks the script. And a lot of our conversations have been around, how do we organize a church as large as this to make sure that we have a script, but God has the right to tear it up? It's a, real, it's a real challenge because worship is essentially an encounter with a living God who speaks. And we live with God, so when God speaks, we obey. And sometimes God seems to speak in a certain moment of time or an act in a certain way in a certain moment of time that causes us to just simply tear up the script. That's what's happening here in 1 Kings chapter 8. 
These priests are there to perform a service. And at the moment where the priests back away from the holy of holies and they have other functions to perform, we read that not just a cloud, but the cloud descends. And God tears up the script. And so what's interesting as we start this story is that on the basis of what's happening in this text, sometimes it's as if corporate worship happens in what I call within the cloud. Have a look with me at verse 11 once more. This is an incredible verse. We're told that the priests could not perform their services because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord had filled his temple. They couldn't perform their service. The idea literally here is not that they couldn't act, is that they couldn't stand. The impression we're given from the Hebrew word is that as this cloud begins to descend, not just in the Holy of Holies, but in the entire temple, the priests are actually face down, unable to stand, unable to see. Why? Well, the word cloud that is used is a specific word. It's the Hebrew word anan. Nothing spectacular to the meaning. The cloud is the cloud. It's a cloud mass. It's cloud, it's clouds, it's cloudy, it's heavy mist. You get the point. This word is used 87 times in the Old Testament. And in most of these references, its form and its appearance has a definite idea. And this idea and this story and this history is so prevalent in the minds of Jews and in the minds of the priests that as soon as this mist, this cloud starts to just envelop the entire corporate experience of God's people, the priests are not able, not simply unable to serve, they're unable to stand. Why? What's going on? Well, firstly, we need to note that the text says this is the cloud, not a cloud. This is not a natural formation. This is a supernatural transformation of a physical space with God's glorious, overwhelming presence. This is the cloud. This isn't a smoke machine that we put on to start the service. We thought about calling this message Smoke in the Sanctuary, and the 1045 would have understood what we're talking about. But in Hebrew, there's a very different word for smoke and cloud, so I couldn't do that. They're not looking, oh, there's smoke in the sanctuary, there's the cloud in the church. No, they're actually saying, this is the cloud. There's a definite meaning to this. Let's trace the background for those of us who may be unfamiliar with it. Let's go firstly to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus 14. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud, the Anan, also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side 
and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. The cloud. Now, this cloud, we often remember, if you're familiar with the Exodus, is led the, the people of God by day and the fire of God by night. Cloud and fire is going to become important a little bit later on. But here, as they're nearing the Red Sea, the cloud and the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord moves from in front to behind. They're no longer guiding, they're protecting that cloud. The cloud that guides, the cloud that provides, the cloud that protects that cloud. Let's go here, Exodus chapter 16. Verse 10, when Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. Do you notice that I've read a couple of passages here, and we read cloud, the Anan, and we also read of the glory of God. The glory of God and the cloud go hand in hand. That cloud. Another reference, Exodus 40. Then the cloud, there is again, the cloud, the Anan, covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord, there it is again, filled the tabernacle. And Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now notice this then. Moses sees the cloud coming down and thinks, I'm not going in there. Why? Because the glory of the Lord is there. Exodus 33, 20. Anyone who looks directly into the glory of the Lord will die. Moses sees the glory of God coming down in the form of a cloud, the Anan, and says, I ain't going in there. But in 1 Kings chapter 8, the priests are in there, and the glory of God in the Anan descends. Now do you know why they can't serve? They are prostrate on their face. They are looking down on the floor because no one can perceive the direct glory of God and live. The cloud. The priests are unable to serve. They're literally unable to stand because the, the cloud. Vivian and I have just returned from vacation and there's something about going to the water for me that simply takes my breath away. What takes your breath away? If you've got that picture in your mind, then multiply that feeling by billions and you may be getting the point. This cloud is closely connected with the glorious presence of God, a presence that both guides and protects. And whenever the word Anan is used in the Old Testament, it carries the idea of an appearance of the glory of God, a presence that is overwhelming, that is incredible, that is inspiring, but also invokes fear in the, in the hearts of the people that encounter it. Now, this also happens in the New Testament. One example of this, Luke chapter 9. This is the transfiguration of Jesus. And there we read this while he was speaking. While Jesus was speaking, a cloud. That's not a cloud, folks. That's the cloud. The cloud appeared and covered them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Why? The glory of God is connected to the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. And the disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Why? Because it's the cloud. And they were amazingly alive to talk about it. 
Of this passage, one commentator, Nolan, says this, the fear the disciples experience is the fear of the divine presence. The same verb is used of the cloud that covered the tabernacle in Exodus 40, 35. Remember that one? Moses didn't go in and made it impossible for Moses to enter. And the disciples, like the priests, are there in a certain place when the cloud decides to descend and it overwhelms them and it literally puts the fear of God into every heart. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, there's a cloud in the church and the disciples and the, the, the priests and everybody in it has the fear of God all over them because the glory of God is evident. The presence of God is overwhelming. Here's a question for you. Have you ever been in a worship service where the presence of God was overwhelming? Every day we plan these services, we pray that the presence of God would be overwhelming. We pray that the glory of God would fall. We pray that the Spirit of God would move. Have you ever been in a service where it's like that? I have a number of times. I finished seminary, I was on a leadership team of a denomination. We were leading at denominational student meetings. We were praying that the glory of God would fall one evening and it did and it was unbelievable. In fact, the, the pastor that was leading this opened his eyes at one point and realized he was standing the other end so far away from everybody. He felt embarrassed and turned around and walked back to where everybody else was but nobody was looking at him because the glory of God was there. It was overwhelming. I remember as a teenager before I went to seminary, being given a lot of opportunities in the local church that I was at, and they said, hey, Craig, we'd really like you to lead a small group, and this is what we're going to do. They're going to go through a spiritual, you know, spiritual formation, spiritual transformation journey as a church, kind of like 40 Days of Purpose, but it wasn't that one. And so they gave me a book, the elders gave me a book in the past, and they said, this is what we want you to do. We want you to lead this, lead this group of people, and about 15 or 20 of us in the group, and we want you to just work through the material so that everybody's on point. Okay, pretty simple, right? Except the glory of God fell at the prayer time. I didn't get to any of the material. And the fear of God was put into me when I realized I had to talk to the pastors and the elders and tell them that I was the rogue that didn't follow the script. Have you ever been in a meeting in a place where the glory of God falls and the agenda is just torn up? I want to introduce you to Pastor Kelly. Kelly, join me on the stage. Kelly is on our staff. He is the staff evangelist. He is a gift of evangelism. For over three decades, Kelly preached in, I think it was nearly 1,500 churches across this country. He's on our staff now, mobilizes and motivates us all to evangelism. He also oversees the international campuses. Kelly, you just got back from Africa, I think. How was that? I was in Nairobi. We did our uh, sixth and seventh purification system at the church we partnership with there in the most densely populated area in uh, Nairobi. Uh, we have seven projects there for the last several years, doing about 100,000 gallons of clean water every single day. And the significance of this trip, uh, Pastor, was the fact that there's been a cholera outbreak uh, in, in Nairobi, and there's a, they're having a tremendous amount of problem. There's been a drought. So these uh, second, th this third and fourth systems or whatever it was, I don't know how many we put in, there's seven total. Uh, and the thing that was really cool about this church, we worked through this church, the, the president of uh, Kenya, uh, President Kenyatta, 
had called the pastor, thanked him for doing these clean water projects. We said, don't bring our name into it. It's about your church and about the kingdom, and gave him three new suits. So he was really, really happy as a pastor because this has been there 20 years. Church has gone from 50 to 6,000, and he's never been able to get a salary from the church because he's Ugandan, he's not Kenyan. And so that's an amazing story in itself. And then the best part of being back pastor uh, is uh, Beth, my wife of 43 years, has been in Uganda right over there for the last eight weeks uh, dealing with the dirt, the dust, the diesel, uh, helping those hundred vulnerable women uh, find jobs and health care, killing, slaying those five global giants. And the best thing is have her back after two months. So I went from Nairobi to meet her to bring her back home. And she's already trying to figure out when she can go back to Uganda. <laughs> so amazing ministry. Thank you for... She's my hero. Good to see you back safe, Beth, and well. Yeah. Um, now, Kelly, you've gone to 1,500 churches across the country spanning over three decades. I think you've preached over 11,000 times. And every meeting you go into, God is with you, right? Because God is always where his people are. Right. But there have been some times where, what I'm calling the Anand, the glory of God has fallen. And in fact, at five times through your ministry, those times are documented. Many of those have actually been documented, put in books. Mm-hmm as um, a kind of um, testimony to the fact that over the last 100 years, God has still been bringing a revival and awakening across this nation. And, and Kelly, some of your ministry is in there. I want you to talk about two occasions, because on those occasions, you had a script everywhere you've gone, you would, you would work right. it some way, but sometimes the glory of God fell, and you had to tear up the script. Uh, tell me about the one in Union University to yeah, start with. And as you know, when we were with you in, in Hamburg, there was a script that was followed. I, I get invited into these churches I did for 30 years based on my spiritual gift, which is just going and preach the simple gospel. On a few occasions, five, but God just showed up, uh, wasn't planned for, wasn't scripted, had no idea what was going to happen. But one of those that Craig referred to was a place called Union University in Jackson, Tennessee. This is a very well-documented event. I always like to use names and places in case anybody wants to find out, is this a fish story? Is this a preacher embellishing something that might have happened? No, it's not might, it did happen. Uh, it was a college campus with about 1,500 students, a very well-respected academic institution. Uh, and so twice a year, they have what's called a spiritual emphasis week. And uh, the six months earlier, they'd had a guy by the name of Charles Coulson, but that was a totally different approach. So when they invited me in, they said, we want to do something totally different with the students. I said, okay. And we want to get uh, geared around your gift. And I said, that's fine. And uh, the guy that ran the chapel said, look, he said, in the mornings, I want you to do 20 minutes with the faculty. And I said, fine, I'll do what I can to help there. He said, now at night, the students will come. We'll go Monday, and we're going to go through Friday. And he said, you do whatever you want at night and go as long as you want. That's a scary thing to tell a preacher, especially an evangelist. <laughs> so we said, okay, we'll contextualize it. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Chris Rice, who was a very gifted uh, songwriter, probably pre-Chris uh, Tomlin, was doing the worship. And we had five, 600 the first night. And they told me, now, it'll build every night. I said, well, that's whatever. You know, if 100 come, 1,000, whatever. And uh, sure enough, five or 600 came. And then the next night, six or 700 came. And I just, there was just an unusual freedom, a usual sense of God's presence. But night three, when I walked into the building, I was a few minutes late, and uh, there was just something happening. I didn't know what it was, uh, didn't really care. Just, so I went and sat on the front by myself, and I began to pray. And as the worship got more and more intense, the Spirit of God began to speak to me, and He said, um, I don't want you to preach tonight. 
And I said, well, now, Lord, didn't you call me? Mm-hmm. Didn't you even give me one of these sermons? He said, yeah. But I don't want you to preach it tonight. I said, do you mind me asking you why? He said, look, let me give you some advice, son. If you're going to preach on obedience, you might want to try occasionally to apply it in your own life. That's hard to tell a preacher, don't go preach when you've got plans to preach, right? So I said, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said, just when you walk up there, you'll know. That's scary uh, because you're on the spot, but it didn't become about me. And I walked up and I just said, guys, I said, you've had enough theology and enough sermons in this school to sink the Titanic. You don't need any more light. I'm just going to challenge you to obey the light in what God has told you as an individual to do in this place tonight. And I just stood back. And they came. And they came. Some of them laid on their face. Some of them got on, their, on the pews. Some of them came to the altar. Some of them went to the back. The invitation that night went eight hours. No preaching. No more singing. Just the presence of God. I got tired about 3.30 in the morning. Went back to the hotel. As soon as I got back to the hotel, I got a phone call. One of the student leaders said, you've got to come back. I said, you don't need me. You don't need me. Because you see, when God shows up, personalities are eclipsed by his presence. When God shows up, it doesn't matter how big your screen is. How intense that even is in this place in times is amazing. But when he shows up, all you can think about is him. And what is he doing in my life, not anybody else's life? I went back. 400 stayed in the chapel and been praying. 400, I saw this with my own eyes. 400 of them went to the dorms. They circled hand in hand and they surrounded the dormitories and prayed this, fire of God, because you see, before glory comes, fire comes. Glory shows up when it wants to show up, but fire precedes it. Before smoke and smoke, there's fire. And they prayed fire of God that fell inside the chapel, fall inside the circle. I saw with my own eyes in the middle of the night, lights coming on. People coming out of the dorms, one, two, four, five, coming in the middle of that circle. Some of them getting saved. Some of them getting broken. Some of them worshiping. And to this day, the people that were in that meeting, one pastor's son called his dad up at 5 o'clock in the morning, apologized for about ruining his father's ministry in a church. That next Sunday, the students were out in the churches talking about what God had done. See, it was about him. It wasn't about anybody else. So that was something that lasted more than eight hours. But yes. there's one that went even longer than that. Talk to us about that. It's a church in Belchase, Louisiana that invited me to come in. Dr. Kenny Moore was the pastor. Kenny had had an earned doctorate, was a gifted, gifted preacher, great theologian, been in this church 10 years, had two revivals, or what I wouldn't call it right, harvest meetings a year. There's a difference between revival and awakening and just having an evangelist in. And for 
10 years, he had two meetings a year, which that's 20 over 10 years. That's a lot of meetings. But back in those days, it was pretty well accepted. I even thought it was a lot. So when I, he called me and asked me to come, he said, would you come and do a meeting in my church? I said, what, do you, what, what kind of meeting do you want? you want a harvest meeting? Because that's where my strength is. He said, yeah, I want to go eight days. I said, ah, eight days. I don't know about eight days. Sunday through Wednesday is enough for me. He said, no, my people will come. They'll be here. They'll show up. Well, I, I believed him, and I said, the preparation, he said, we've done all the prep, we understand prep, my people just like it, and they'll be there. I said, okay, I trust you. So I booked the meeting, and showed up, started on a Sunday morning, and sure enough, Sunday night they came back, and we had five, ten people trust the Lord every service. It was a good church, running four or five hundred, healthy church, good environment. But during the week, we were having some conversations together about ministry, just like pastors and preachers, and as a guest, there are times sometimes pastors would get real transparent with me and just talk about their burdens and their hurts and their struggles, which I felt honored to always listen. And as I got older, they talked more about it. And I noticed I picked up some things with Kenny in the conversation during the week that he was really struggling with some things, which was fine. And then the next night, the same conversation, there was anger. And I was concerned about, I thought, well, Lord, I pray that there's not going to be a root of bitterness here because he's going through some stuff. But welcome, welcome to ministry sometimes. So Saturday afternoon, we were talking some more, and when I was going to, the next Sunday was the eighth day, and I was going to leave. I had a three o'clock appointment to catch a plane. One of the elders was going to take me to the plane, and we're going to finish up Sunday morning. But that night, Saturday night, he came and he said, I don't think the Lord's done. And I said, well, now you're the pastor. I always, what, what do you mean you don't think he's done? He said, I, I really feel like there's such momentum. We need to extend the meeting. I said, I said Kenny, look, sometimes in the excitement of what God is doing in a harvest meeting, you want to keep going because you want more. And I said, but you can also kill the momentum by extending it too much. He said, well, would you pray about it? What are you going to do when a guy says you're going to pray about it? No. I said, sure, we'll pray about it. I thought, ah, that's easy. I want to go back and see Beth and the boys. And so the next morning I got up to get coffee because I was staying with a pastor, and uh, I noticed he'd been up. And I said, Kenny, you've you been up? He said, I've been up all night. You've been praying all night? He said, Yeah. I just, there's something going on. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. Here's the deal. If God moves Sunday morning, it'd have to be God. So I said, I said, what? If God moves Sunday morning, I said, and I thought that was a safe out because I still catch my play. And I said, eh, we'll talk about it. So we had service. It was a good service, but not anything super special. Great crowds, good atmosphere. People come to the Lord. Just an ideal meeting, perfect meeting. Not Pentecost, but solid, healthy, good and the pastor comes up to have some closing words. I'm on the platform. My suitcase is over in the corner with uh, the elder going to take me to the airport. And the pastor gets up and says, I want to say something to you before we go. He said, you know, I've been telling Kelly about what's been going on this week in my life and ministry. And he said, some of the struggles I have as pastor is your pastor. And I thought, well, you know, he's earned that right. Ten years, he's been there, and the people love him and know him. And he says, as a matter of fact, I told him that there were some of you driving me nuts. Now, <laughs> on. Now, Lord, you know, I don't know where this is going, but I, if something happens here, I, I've created some messes, but not this one. <laughs> and then he asked, he said, there are five of you. And I'm going, oh, my Lord, this is fixing to get really rough. The five of you in this service, and I want to call them by name and ask them to stand up. And I'm going, oh, man, what's this guy doing? I've heard about evangelists messing things up, but usually it's not the pastor. And he said, I want to apologize to you. Everybody knows we've been fighting. Everybody knows, not only behind the scenes, everybody in this church knows what's been going on with us five. 
And he said, I want to ask your forgiveness because you see, I've loved you as long as you agreed with me. I loved you as long as you did what I asked you to do. And I've been wrong. And at that moment, the brokenness that came on those five couples and this pastor. And all I can tell you is like, I know how to explain it, it's like a, a Holy Ghost tsunami in the back of that room crashed in on that. Did we extend the meeting? 27 days. We never met less, and we didn't have a timetable. We never met less than three hours. It was not unusual, three, four, five. So what do you do in a service? You see, that's the whole point. When God becomes your focus and he settles in and the Shekinah glory of God comes, when the fire comes and the glory comes, you're not caught up with what day it is, what time it is. All you know is he is there and I want his presence. I'm hungry. I'm a glutton for his glory in those moments. Been going 12 days and Kenny came to me and said, look, he said, Football season starting, cheerleaders are in our church, leaders in the church having a big jamboree, and it's going to conflict with our schedule. I said, let's take a night off. Man, we've been going 12 days. And I said, give the people a break. Don't make them choose between their kids, football, and the responsibilities they have as Christians. Let's, not, let's give them a night off. He said, uh, I don't want to do that. I said, well, what do you want to do? He said, we're going to let them go do the football thing, and we're going to have church at midnight. When? This isn't Christmas mass. No, we're going to have church at midnight. I, he said, I don't care if five people show up. God's in this place, and I'm going to be there. I said, well, can we go eat beignets first? And he said, yeah, we'll go eat beignets first. We get to 1130, and there are 500 people in the church. We went to 4 o'clock in the morning. An 80-year-old deacon got, said, I want us to do the Lord's Supper. The next night, we did the Lord's Supper on our knees. He said, can we please take the Lord's Supper on our knees because we are on holy ground. That meeting went 27 more days and lasted six months. Thank you, Kelly. <clears throat> Have you ever been in a meeting where the presence of God was overwhelming? This is what we pray for every day. It's what we pray for for every service. We want the Anand, the, the glory of God to fall. We want people to be so overwhelmed in God's presence that it's all that they can do not to respond to him. And it's all that they can do to respond to him. The Anand, the cloud in the church when the glory of God falls. That's what we want. But all too often, it's not what we see, is it? And you know that many times I've, I've really wrestled with this and I've recognized that as right as it is for us to pray that we will experience the cloud within the church, the reality is that all too often we worship under the cloud. And I want everybody to know from the text that that's okay. In fact, that's normal. Go back to the text with me, 1 Kings chapter 8. The priests had a plan, everything is planned out, and then the glory of God fell. They worshiped within the cloud. They responded to who God is. The, the cloud has departed, and then Solomon stands up to dedicate the temple. And I just want you to look at what he says in verse 12. It says this, Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a what? in a dark cloud. The Lord has said that he would dwell, dwell. 
That word is the Hebrew word shakan. It is the root for the Shekinah glory of God. The Lord has said that he would dwell, ties to the glory of God, not in the anan, the cloud, the mist, but in the arafel. It's a completely different word. The Lord has said that he would dwell. His normal abode, when he comes down with his people, is not in the Anan. The normal abode, Solomon says, is actually in the Arafel, a cloud, a heavy cloud, deep darkness, gloom, gloomy, thick cloud. You getting the point? This is the way that God relates to his people normally when he comes in a special way, Solomon says. But today... You see, the Arafel is a thick darkness that masks the glory of God and permits us to approach him. Normally, the Lord dwells, Solomon says, in a dark cloud where humanity cannot see him. Why? Exodus 33, 20, anybody who looks directly into the glory of God, what, dies? Yet on this day, Solomon says, God has chosen to come in the Anan. It is only right for us to pray for, for Anan, for the glory of God to fall when we uh, worship together. But what is normal is not the Anan. What is not normal is that we worship within the cloud. What is normal is that we worship under the cloud. We worship in the sense of Arafel, where God's glory is what? Masked or veiled. Why? Because God wants us to move and to approach him. God wants us to respond. When the glory falls, we fall. When the Arafel comes, we move. There's something incredibly powerful in this. One guy, Leupold, has said, as the storm sweeps near, he is in it. The thick storm clouds are the material upon which God rides. Consider the implications then of the Lord's dark presence. I know you don't like the word, and I'm putting it out there intentionally to challenge you. What are the implications of this Arafel for our corporate worship? Oh, it's only right to pray for the Anan. But the Lord has chosen to dwell in the Arafel. Consider some of these scriptures. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Clouds, Anan and Arafel, they come together. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Or oh, this one, I, I love this one. Exodus 19.9. The Lord said to Moses... I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud. I'm going to come to you in the Arafel, not the Anan. Remember, the Anan led them. The Anan moved from in front of them and went behind them, brought darkness on the Egyptians and light where they were. But God says, I'm going to come to you, Moses, not in the Anan. I'm going to come to you in the dark cloud in the Arafel. Why? So that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in who? In you, not him. In you. The Arafel is but us. 
Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. Now, if you know anything about this story, you know that when Moses was called into the cloud with God, he actually entered it, and he didn't stay there eight hours. He didn't stay there 27 days, like Kelly said. You remember how many days he spent there? 40 days. That's why I wanted these stories. If we can't get ahead around eight hours or 27 days, then we're not going to be able to get our head around 40 days, are we? There's something that happens when the glory of God, when the presence of God manifests himself, that we want to stay in it, we want to rest in it. And then when he returned out of the Arafel, okay, out of the Arafel to the people, his skin shone so brightly that people were afraid to come anywhere near Moses. So do you remember what he did? He took a veil, and he plopped it in front of his face. He made his own cloud. So that when the people looked at him, they wouldn't be able to perceive the glory of God, the Anan, in a way that provokes fear, in a way that's overwhelming. And Moses, whenever he would be with the people, could just pull down that cloud, as I'm going to call it, whenever he was not with God in order to protect the people from the glory of God that he reflected. The cloud and the glory go together, not just then, they do so today. And I want you to look at a passage of Scripture with me in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You're not going to see this on the screen. All too often, when it comes to our worship, we pray, God, let your glory fall. Anan. And there have been occasions where many of us in the room have, ex have experienced this, but the reality is most of us and all of us who have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ worship God in the context of Arafel. There is a veil, there is a, a cloud, there is a second cloud in the church. I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 4 from verse 1 through verse 6. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. Why? Because the fire has fallen. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is what? Veiled. It is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the what? The light. The light of the gospel that displays the what? The glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine in, out in the darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of what God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Let me ask you this, in light of this, have you ever been in a worship service wondering if you've done something wrong? Feeling that God has abandoned you? Sense that you can't see God or feel God anymore? That you've lost your way and you wonder whether you'll ever find it again? Have you ever worshipped God under a cloud? Many of us have been there, right? When worship is just tough, and we wonder where God is, what we need to realize on the basis of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is that the Arafel is the hiddenness of God in the very moment of his closeness. 
God is so close. And when a person puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul tells us here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that the glory of God himself comes in and what? Makes its home within us. God makes his home within us. And he does that and then sends us out into the world, which you can do with Arafel. With the Arafel, you can move. And you go out into the world and then people who are not saved, they come to us. And what does Paul say here? He says that the glory of God is veiled. And what we need to realize is that God is going to use us every now and again to, in such a way where that veil will be lifted up and they will see the glory of God and they will see it through who? Through you and me who carry Jesus into this world. Some of you are here and you're living, moving, breathing, under a cloud. I want you to know that God is closer than you think. Don't go looking for God out there somewhere. If Jesus Christ is at the center of your life, then the glory of God is right there. Yes, it's veiled. But Paul prays to the Ephesian church, I pray that the eyes, not in your head, because darkness reveals the limitation of the human eye. He prays that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, would be awakened to see the love that God has for you. The reality is that God dwells in deep darkness. That's not a popular truth, but its unpopularity doesn't necessarily make it false. The darkness that is not dark to God can be terrifying for those of us who like our paths and our God well lit. Yet sometimes God isn't well lit. Sometimes he's intentionally dark. Not because he's far from you, but because he's so close to you that if it were not for that Arafel, that covering which is Jesus Christ himself, you would not be able to move for the Anan. And the church is about movement after all. And maybe as much as we will pray for the Anan to fall, maybe the mission of God demands that we all say, God, thank you that we live and worship under a cloud. Thank you that you have placed the glory of God in me that I can so quickly overlook. So let me encourage you, if you're worshiping God right now and you're living under a cloud, you're worshiping under a cloud with a God who seems so far away, then what I want you to do is, I want you to engage in this last portion of worship that our team's gonna lead us in. They're gonna sing a song we've sung a couple of times before, There is a Cloud. And I know some people have listened to this song and they've said, what is this about? This is about the cloud of God's glory. This is about God preparing to move. This is about the storm clouds gathering and then it begins to rain. I want you to listen to these words. I want you to engage with these words and I want you to worship God as if you truly are under a cloud where God is about to let it rain because God wants you to realize he's not far from you. He is so close that you can overlook it. Listen to these words and engage as the Lord leads you.